Blog Talk Radio. Welcome one, welcome all to the DMP show, delivering the truth and exposing the lies uh, on freedomizerradio.com. My name is Paul Dayton, and I'll be flying solo tonight. Unfortunately, my co-host, uh, Diana, will not be able to make it this evening, as we all know. She's very involved in all kinds of causes and committees, and uh, she's very involved in everything, and so she doesn't always have time to, uh, to make the show, uh, which is our loss, but we will uh, carry on without her. If you're tuning in to hear Dave Franklin, candidate for town council in District 6 in New York State, he, along with Diana, will be back next week. So tune in, uh, tune in then. If you're listening to old shows, you can always go to pauldayton.us. If you're listening to this podcast, say, weeks or months or even a year after it occurs, go back to pauldayton.us. You can find every episode of this show along with other articles and shows on which I've been a featured guest and um, Diana's, uh, Diana's health stuff, hopehealth.begoodinside.com. Or you can find that there. Last week, we had on the wonderful guest, Diane Sayre, who is a candidate for uh, the federal Senate seat in New York State. And uh, it was a real pleasure to have her. And I thought that went pretty well. I mean, she came on and, you know, she touted central planning in the name of liberating the masses. And um, all we did was sort of gently state some facts that uh, showed that to be nothing but uh, insulting falsehood. And just sort of, we kept it very civilized. So I think that that went pretty well. If you want to tune into that show, if you missed that, uh, again, check it out, uh, pauldayton.us or wherever you listen to your podcast, the show with uh, Diane Sayre. Diane Sayre, and by the way, her uh, her website is sayreforsenate, S-A-R-E-F-O-R, senate.com. So we will still, uh, when we have a guest on like that, we'll still promote the guest. And I think that's the way to do it. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. We know that you have so many options out there to listen uh, to everything. Everything's so much more convenient now, which is wonderful. And so I thank everybody for any amount of time they devote to our show. If you want to call in, the the phone number is 319-527-6208. That's 319-527-6208. If you push one, that lets us know that you wish to uh, come on the air and uh, say hello or say something else, and that's wonderful. You know, we get, we get uh, listener feedback. You know, people email me on pauldayton.us. I do see people out in the world. People contact Diana, I know. And I know we have a listener called Nate Jamie who uh, is in the Las Vegas area. And uh, truth be known, has been a, a, was a boyhood chum of mine. And we've maintained acquaintance over the years. And he says that he listens. Uh, he, he said it often enough that I and, and mentioned things so that I believe him, that he listens. He's not just being nice. So I want to thank you, Nate Jamie, for, for listening uh, and uh, carrying on. He's a real good guy, uh, if you happen to know him, one of the greatest, uh, most resilient people with great strength of character, wonderful person, Nate Jamie in Vegas. So thanks for listening to the show, and thanks, everybody. All right, so let's get on with it here. Uh, normally, Diana will uh, will do a few headlines, and um, we will do a couple of headlines here as well. All right, now I'm on, truth be known, jellyfish.news, which is the uh, John B. Wells sort of uh, news uh, source. And I'm a fan of that show, and I was actually fortunate enough to be a featured guest as well. So I dig that show. And so since I uh, am doing the headlines myself, I will just come here, and we'll see what we see here. What do we have? Healthcare workers picket outside U.S. hospitals in multiple states, kicking off a three-day strike. 
Well, that's unfortunate news. Let's uh, learn more about that. In the first place, a strike, you know, monopolies are, uh, are horrible, uh, no matter whether they're comprised of, of employees or of producers. Uh, you know, people call it a labor union because they think it's different from a monopoly. A monopoly in practice uh, only exists, by the way, when the state, that is when government enforces it. Often government creates it in the first place, much like in the New Deal when we had the dairy, uh, the dairy uh, producers monopoly uh, created and perpetuated by the AAA. Uh, which is not the car club. I was talking about the NRA, by the way, with somebody uh, at one point in the recent, uh, the recent past, uh, which is the New Deal program, the National Recovery Administration, which was a horror show of, of tyranny and, and oppression. Uh, th that one bureau itself in one year generated 7,500 pages of new federal legislation when prior to Roosevelt taking office in a century and a half, the entire nation had produced around 2,000 pages of federal statutes and to encompass all areas and all matters. In 150 years, approximately 2,000 pages of federal statutes. Frank and the New Dealers come in, and one bureau alone, in one year alone, uh, more than three times as much, right? 7,500 pages of legislation. It's horrible. Uh, but people don't realize that you know it's just it's just a concentration. It's, it's, it's a small group only exists because government puts it there and gives it power, gives it legal authority, which has the power to exclude all others. Not just today, not just the day the legislation is passed, but for as long as the legislation is in existence. So that is, if we're talking about uh, dairy producers, again, these producers had always uh, colluded in small groups. You know, they get in the back of a room someplace and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fix our prices. You know, the three of us and our three uh, major dairy concerns are going to fix our prices and we're going to collude. And they would do that for a while, weeks, sometimes months. But then one would always go behind the back of the other and betray the other two in order to make more money for themselves personally. And by what measure, by what, by what means would this be done? Out there, I'll give you a minute to think it over, just a few seconds. Hmm. If we've all agreed to keep our prices high and with my com former competitors, and I want to get an advantage over my competitors who I know, who I expect to keep their prices high, I could lower my prices. That's what they would always do. So the consumer, the people always benefited uh, by, by just, Nate, the world just took care of it. The individual's desire for personal gain. Uh, would cause them to betray the others in the scheme and to uh, and to lower their prices, and then the, the others in the scheme would follow suit, and then the, the, the monopoly would be the attempt at monopoly or price fixing would be broken up. The same is true of railroad rates. The same is true. But, and by the way, the railroad rates, the railroads did that for a long, for decades and decades uh, until the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, codified that monopoly into existence forbidding new people from, from entering as, as uh, competitors, not just that day, but for, for to this day, forever, uh, until the legislation goes away, which has not to this day gone away. Uh, so that, again, is always the case. The same thing with a, a job holder's monopoly, known as, labeled as, as a labor union. What these people do, I mean, people are, should be able to freely choose to join together Right, if there's 50 people or 100 or, or, or 10,000 or 100,000 or however many, if they want to voluntarily choose to collude with each other and to have solidarity and that they, they as a group will, you know, all 
not work, uh, if they don't get paid what they want, then they can do so. They can pay themselves, they can tax themselves. They call it union dues, it's just a tax you pay. They can tax themselves to their master. Uh, and, you know, the, the master can be responsible for sort of a war chest to fund the people while they don't work. And that's fine. That's all fine with me. When government comes in and says, you have the authority now, the right, the legal right, the word right is so bizarre, it should be in quotation marks, right? We're giving you legal license, I'm going to use that word because it's more appropriate, to urinate all over someone else's private property rights, right? We're going to say that you, the workers, the employees, can dictate who can and cannot work in a business that you definitely do not own. You definitely did not start it. You definitely did not buy a controlling interest, and now it's yours because you purchased it fair and square. You're basically just, government is picking the pocket of the minority, that is the business owner, to, uh, to uh, attempt to purchase votes of these employees in this fashion. Uh, and what's bizarre to me, so what, what, what is not surprising, because somebody will always point out to me and say, Paul, well, how do you reconcile what you're saying with uh, what you're saying that, that union monopolies are bad for the worker as a class? They'll always say, well, Paul, how do you reconcile that with the fact that union workers statistically have like the highest pay and the most time off and so forth? To which I respond, the most, what should be the, the obvious answer. It's alarming that this is not obvious to people. The obvious answer is that when government gives a handful of people authority to exclude the majority, the overwhelming majority of the worker, that that small minority that's been given unearned, undue uh, authority licensed by government to steal from rightful property owners, that is the business owner, that that small group should do well is not a surprising outcome. When you have something that by law and systematically excludes I mean, nine over. I mean, no, no. As far as I know, in the United States, not even one percent of the population has ever been a member of a single labor union. So that what you have is ninety-nine percent, literally ninety-nine percent or more, of the labor force is forbidden from working there at all. The union monopolies tightly and jealously uh, uh, suppress the number of jobs available. They tightly and jealously uh, forbid people from learning how to do more than one thing so that they can better themselves, be a better worker, maybe graduate to being their own boss, uh, and so or do other things and just, and just improve. So it keeps the workforce down in that way. Even the people who are in the little monopoly are holding themselves back in terms of competency by these very measures. And again, they're forbidding the overwhelming majority of the worker to be involved, to, to work there at all, under at any rate, under any conditions, in any terms, at any time. So I find that fascinating, that something that forbids 99% or more of the working class, right, that class, that classification or, or uh, element or uh, proportion or whatever synonym you want to use, that forbids 99% of said people from working a job benefits the workers as a class. That anybody could believe such nonsense is fascinating. Uh, so anyway, we have these people. They're starting a, uh, a three-day strike, which is interesting that uh, normally when they do this, so they go take over a business they don't own and they forbid people from going in and so forth. 
Uh, and they can even dictate, and this is a new deal, by the way, who made this so, they could, they could dictate who can and cannot be on the premises. That is forbidding. Imagine you hired somebody to come mow your lawn at your house where you live, right, you the listener. You hire somebody to come mow your lawn, and because you hired them and you paid them what you agreed to pay them, they now say that they own your house. They can decide uh, how much you're going to pay them. If you don't pay them the terms that they want, uh, then they can say that, you know, you cannot be in your house, that they can be in your house whenever they want. They don't have to buy it from you or anything. They're just going to steal it from you uh, until, like a child, pouting, until you give them what they want. Uh, how incredibly unjust. The same is true of your car. You hire somebody to, 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 you know, give you an oil change on your car or whatever, uh, and they say, this is my car now. Because you hired me, now I can take your private property that you own fair and square in real life. And myself and some politicians come up with some nonsense and call it a right that I have a right to urinate all over, a pretend right to urinate all over your actual rights. Uh, so that's how that works. So what are these people doing here? It says tens of thousands of Kaiser Permanente workers took to picket lines in multiple states on Wednesday, launching a massive strike that the company warned could cause delays at, at its hospitals and clinics that serve nearly 13 million Americans. So already right here, are we benefiting the masses or are we harming the masses? We are, we are preventing 13 million Americans from access to these hospitals. So definitely the answer. It's so that uh, um, a 10,000 10, workers can, uh, can, you know, try to get their way. Uh, so clearly, again, this is not helping the masses. It's harming the masses, clearly and obviously. The Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions. What a name. What a name. <laughs> the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions representing about 85,000 of the health systems. Okay, so 85, we'll call it 100,000. 100,000 people are urinating all over 13 million. That is the people who don't own the hospital. They're just preventing them from getting the care that they're supposed to have if they want to pay for it. Even if they want to buy it, they can. It's a disgrace. So anyway, this, this coalition of monopolists represents 85,000 health systems employees. Nationally approved a strike for three days in California, Oregon, Colorado, and Washington. Good freaking Lord. So what are their demands here? Uh, coalition. We don't ever want to be in a situation where the nurses have to do our job. Right. So, again, we have, a, uh, we have an instance in which uh, they're having strict, very strict segregation of the, of the worker in terms of what they can and cannot learn, right? Suppressing worker competency as a whole. Uh, is clearly the case. A uh, strike comes in a year when there have been work stoppages with multiple industries, including transportation, entertainment, and hospitality. Uh, so that's that. Uh, you have uh, a case of a monopoly. Now, if these people wanted to freely choose to organize and behave this way, and the employer can say, okay, fine, I'll just, I'll just replace the entire staff. Have a nice life. I'm not putting up with this. This is my business. I don't need you. I had this business before I ever met you. I'll have this business after you die. If, I die. if you died right now, the business will go on. It's mine. I don't need you. You need to know your place. Uh, that would be fine. And if the new staff was horrible and they had to go crawling back to the old staff who quit to try to hire them and give them what they want, then fine. Free, freedom is the key. Liberty is the key, right? Private property rights. Uh, when you have somebody with no risk uh, to themselves, that is, they don't actually risk losing their job, they really are not courageous. They're just a punk. Right? It's sort of like those movies where somebody's supposed to be a real big tough guy, but they won't actually fight anybody one on one. The scumbag will only hit somebody when two or three of his henchmen are holding the other guy's arms behind his back, right? That's basically what you have here, 
right? You have gutless punks masquerading as strong and brave uh, and brave individuals. So that's that. And in fact, that's all the, the, the headlines I plan on doing right now. Uh, because as you know, I don't really keep up with the headlines and I spent that much time on them and I already, uh, I already am done with it. <laughs> so we'll continue on with the show here. Uh, and what I will say that, so when we had Miss Sarah on last week, she mentioned, I thought we were pretty nice to her. We didn't jump all over her. We didn't, uh, you know, rub her nose in, in every single incorrect thing that she said. She engaged in some demagoguery. We just pointed out that some of it was false. And then let her, let her make her statements. We permit the audience to uh, to make their own decisions. We have enough respect for our audience that they can do so. She mentioned colonization, and she portrayed colonists, you know, with the usual demagoguery of, it's uh, it's they they uh, come in and they they rob the land and the inhabitants of all of its resources and money and they plunder and they take it back away someplace else harming these poor poor colonized the natives in the area which of course is, is historically not often the case in fact in fact frankly it's more often the opposite of that after all colonists don't so a nation doesn't try to colonize a place just so that they can like be a jerk to the people who live there. It's it's for it's because they want to do something useful with the area or think they can do something useful. It could be just for military strategic purpose, like militarily strategic purpose, right? That could be what they're after. But often it's so that they can try to uh, you know grow, create markets where markets did not exist before. During the 19th and 20th century, uh, British colonies in Africa on the Gold Coast. When you have the uh, the case of children in school, so from 1900 to 1909, there were 3,000 uh, African children in schools on the Gold Coast, 3,000 for that decade. Half, by 1950, once the Europeans had been there, once the, once the British had been there for a while, 150,000 of the African children were in schools, up from 3,000 in nearly half a century. Gold Coast travel and transportation was also improved greatly. In the 1890s, there were no rails and no roads. By the 1930s, there were rails and railroads. So that is, they went in with their own money, with outsider money, and they put in this capital to install these railroads, uh, which, by the way, were going to outlive the, the, the length of the colony. Uh, so that is a net gain for the people who live there. Travel and transportation required fewer hours than had previously taken days. So that is, before, in 1890, it would take somebody five days to travel from point A to point B. However, by 1930, it would take them three hours to travel the same, this same point A to the same point B because of this, this rail that was put in by the British, because at the British's, with the British's own money, with their own funds, with their, in an effort to try to make something useful of this basically backwards land. Uh, British West Africa, slavery and slave trading virtually were eliminated during colonization. The British, or what's called the West, our leader, the United States, was right behind the British uh, in, in, terms of, in terms of sequence, in terms of major power, uh, was, was not far behind the British in, in eliminating and suppressing slave trade, uh, of course. Uh, now, so that, that's another key that people don't really, say, you know, don't really tell the whole truth, right? Uh, by the 1930s, Nigerian trade hubs had switched from slave trading to groundnut trading, right? So the same people were probably still there, you know, doing their, uh, 
as sort of merchants, Nigerian merchants, but the product changed. They, they switched the market. So instead of, instead of trading humans as, as chattel slaves, they started trading food, which also incentivized people to grow and cultivate the food and transport it and so forth. Uh, health and life expectancy for Africans soared, along with quality of life. Exports from sub-Saharan Africa rose in its proportion of tropical trade from 6.2% of, of tropical trade in 1913, climbing to 13.3% of said trade by 1937, and reaching 18.2% of all tropical trade by 1955. That is, sub-Saharan Africa before, I mean, was, was hardly trading anything, right? 6%, comprised 6% of the trade. Now they were almost one-fifth in approximately half a century. Uh, these are all very beneficial uh, factors. Uh, what goes on more, uh, writing in 1926, writer Alan McPhee describes it as the superimposition of the 20th century after, uh, after Christ onto the 20th century before Christ in his tome, The Economic Revolution in British West Africa. So, and that's right. So they went to this backwards place. It was more or less isolated. And I've been on other times talking about the reason Africa is so backwards, has been so backwards, with this proximity to Europe, uh, sort of left behind, is because of its geography. It's not because of uh, some kind of anti-black, you know, conspiracy theory encompassing all ages at all times, and that's why the blacks in Africa were left behind. That's not the case. That's not even slightly the case. It's something you learn in middle school, right? Uh, Africa, though it is surrounded by water, if you look at a map of the world, if you look at the coastline more, uh, more, more, uh, well, what's the word, closely, then you find there aren't really any ports or harbors, right? The, the coast is more or less uh, straight, sort of, sort of straight up and down, so that the waters were too rough and it was almost impossible, certainly not, uh, not enticing to try to land a boat. Uh, really anywhere in Africa other than to come right up through the north uh, from Europe. Uh, sometimes people landed on the south point, but all the rest of that coastline was basically uh, unusable based on the technology of the time. They didn't even have motors. You have to keep in mind, they had no motors. <laughs> right? they, they were at the mercy of, of, the, uh, of the waters and currents. And so that was the, so, so what you had is more or less, oh, and the northern Africans, were very like violent and combative, just like people all over the world. It's not because Africans or blacks are particularly savage. That's not the case. It's because that's the history of the world. The Indians were that way when Europeans came uh, to America. Uh, in East Asia, they were always that way when the other East Asians would come by or when Europeans came by, uh, especially unknown people. Like, the most common outcome for strong people, people who perceive themselves as strong nations, was one of not unwelcoming, right, violent. We're going to keep you out. We're going to attack you. In fact, we're going to try to uh, beat you and rob you for what you have in some cases. However, the weakest, the people who, who were sort of at, uh, at the mercy of the stronger nations, this is true in the, in the uh, American Indians, and it was also true in other areas as well, those people were more likely to be welcoming to, to newcomers because they sought allies against the big, bad, uh, powerful nations in their, in their geographical region. So anyway, what you had was relative isolation in Africa. And uh, <laughs> this writer describes them as being living in the state of the 20th century before, 20th century BC, 2000 BC, uh, in terms of their technology. 
and you know the Europeans came and colonized, and they they brought them forward. You know, four thousand years according to this. This probably taking some liberty, but not that much. Really, not that much. I mean, there's no, there's hardly any mechanization in Africa. Uh, prior to that time, uh, the wheel, as we know, was was unknown in certain parts, the most backwards parts of of Africa uh, until the mid 20th century. Um, so that's the case. So again, we have it's a net benefit the colonization in Africa, and frankly, the biggest negative um, imparted to the Africans from the Europeans uh, certainly was the presently what was the presently fashionable heavy-handed central planning style of government, right? Swindling people, telling them that, putting shackles on the populace and telling them that these shackles were in fact held their liberation, right? Take away their money, create monopolies in the, in the name of, of shielding them from monopoly, tax the hell out of them in the name of helping them, make, and make slaves of them, right? Rule is a tyrant. And the installation of these governments, once the Europeans began leaving in the middle of the century, in the middle and the end, of, towards the end of, of the 20th century, uh, in parts of Africa, was in fact that that was the bad part. That's what was bad for Africans was like basically New Dealerism, or central planning, or American liberalism, wokernism, communism, socialism, whatever you want to call it, concentrating the power into the hands of the few by decree, uh, in the name of the liberation of the mass. And just a few more notes on this before we hit the break at the top of the hour. As of 1980, transport beyond the rudimentary retain, remained entirely dependent upon rails built and kept by foreigners. This is in Africa. During colonization of British West Africa, all agricultural exports produced by West Africans on farms which were their own, more often than not. So that is, these people who were once these backwards people running around in the jungle or whatever they were doing, uh, you know, messing around, now they were business owners. They owned their own farm, which they, in which they not only uh, subs had subsistence uh, production, that is, they could feed themselves in, in their village or whatever, but they also could sell it. They had cash crops. They could export it. We had business owners, making business owners of the, of the people of, of West Africa. Uh, how that harms them, I'm really not sure in real life with real people and real money, but in real life with real people and real money, that is what actually happened. So again, always watch out for unsubstantiated claims and t-shirt slogans, and, uh, and always prefer uh, people who speak the language of evidence. Uh, so that's that, and I really want to thank everyone for being here again. You are listening to DNP Delivering the Truth and Exposing the Lies on freedomizerradio.com. Uh, you may be able to hear some appliances going off in the background, which is a little annoying, but nonetheless is occurring. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes, uh, just a few short minutes, to uh, resume with the second segment of the show. You're listening to DNP, Delivering the Truth and Exposing the Lies. This is Paul Dayton flying solo. Diana will be back next week. Hang tight. That's right. The Jokers and Jesters Comedy Tour is back on the road. We are currently promoting our second Amazon Prime special, Jokers and Jesters, the next special. We will be touring small towns across this great country of ours. So for our tour dates, follow us on Facebook at Jokers and Jester Comedy Tour or at our website, jokersandjester.com. It's a great night of music, laughter, and magic. 
Don't miss us as we come to a small town near you. Thanks for stepping into umpire, Mr. Fletcher. Well, I'm an English teacher, not a phys ed teacher, but I'll do my best. You'll do fine. Just call the kids safe or out. And keep an eye on them right there. They've been trying to steal. Who, him? No, we use the kids' preferred pronouns. He's on second. I mean them. There's only one kid there. Who's them? They are. He is? No, they is. He's on second. You mean her? Don't call me her. I'm a him. That's a he. The kid on third uses she. He uses she? No, she uses she. And you want me to keep my eye on them? Yes. But especially him. No, keep your eye on them. They've been trying to steal. Who's they? Him, her, and him? No, not him and her. Just them. Their pronoun is there. And they're right there. I'm an English teacher. I get pronouns. That's him, her, and him. No, that's them, him, and her. Excuse me, but now I identify as him. He's gender fluid. He used to be she, but now she's him. Huh? And I'd like to change my pronouns to Z, Zim, and Zer. Now Z wants you to call Zer, Zim. What's a Zim? Don't call Zim a what? Now Z is offended. Look, I don't want to offend anybody. I'll call them by their names. Kids, what are your names? I'm Addison. I'm Addison. Addison. Their parents are millennials. They named them all Addison. Well, why do I have to use preferred pronouns? Because gender is a social construct and I was born this way. How, how can he be born that way if gender is a social construct? Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't question their identity or his or Zer's. Just follow the rules and call them they. <laughs> Who makes these rules? They do. This they? No. Not that they. They they. Huh? They will get you fired if you don't use the right pronoun. They will kick you off of Twitter if you question their beliefs. They cancel comedians and offend them. They get rid of professors with different points of view. But who's they? Nobody knows who they are. We just have to listen to them. Hey, if you like that video, you can help us make more videos like that by joining the Babylon Bee YouTube channel for just $4.99 a month. Become an exclusive subscriber. You get videos, you get full-length podcasts that are often twice as long as the one that you've been seeing. Do it now. Smash the join button and you can become a member, a Bee Superfan, and you'll be a lot cooler than everyone else. Ay, ay, ay. Lechepacabra. Okay. Are you tired of losing your herd of goats to the chupacabra? Are you worried about how you're going to eat because your goats were viciously ravaged? Call SNL Chupacabra Insurance today. SNL provides fast, speedy claims in the event of your goat farm being destroyed. Low rates, fast service, and professional attitude is what makes SNL your choice for chupacabra insurance. Call 855-CHUPANO today. 855-CHUPANO for our free rate quote. SNL Chupacabra Insurance. Just in case the Chupacabra comes. Ay, ay, ay. La Chupacabra. Welcome back to the show. This is DNP delivering the truth and exposing the lies. This is Paul Dayton flying solo with you here. You're tuning in to hear Dave Franklin. Uh, candidate for town council for District 6 in New York State. He will be on next week. Diana also will be on as well. She, If you missed the beginning of the show, uh, Diana is unable to join us tonight. She's very busy, as we all know. She's involved in all kinds of committees and causes, and she's very busy all the time. So she's unable to make the show tonight, but we do miss her, and we are looking forward to having her back next week. 
so that with that, we let you know that we are on Freedomizer Radio. We are also available on iHeart, and we still have a couple of people listening, but it looks like they don't uh, in terms of calling in, but they have not pushed one to speak. If you want to call in, the number is 319-527-6208. That's 319-527-6208, and push the number one to uh, indicate that you want to come on the air. Uh, if you do, otherwise, I don't know what people do. Maybe they, uh, I don't know why they like to, sometimes we have people listening, but they don't want to come on the air. I wonder if their phone signal is stronger than their internet signal, signal where they are or, or what causes that. But nonetheless, we're happy to have everybody. You can also check us out on iHeart, uh, where the podcasts are always available. And uh, you can go to pauldayton.us where you can find every episode of this show, along with all their articles and Diana's site where she uh, has her health stuff. So that's very cool. PaulDayton.us. Thanks for joining us. Next up, we're going to shift gears a little bit here from colonialism into, uh, well, the 1920s in the United States, uh, which is an important period. A lot happens during the 20s. We have the, first of all, the Fed, uh, that is the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, which was established in 1913 in the United States. Uh, really sort of sat on the sidelines until uh, after the, the war, uh, the Great War, w- was over. Um, and more or less, they kind of just sat and watched. During the war, of course, we, we saw the Aldrich, Aldrich Vreeland Act, which I cover in my first book, which was a solution to the uh, bank problem, uh, which, was, which worked like a charm. Uh, there, was no, there were no uh, restrictions on conversions of deposits of currency, of deposits into currency. Like that is, if you had $100 on deposit at the bank, you were able at, at all times to take out $100 worth of currency if you wished, uh, which was different from the other episodes I cover in 1907 and 1893 and uh, 1873, uh, in which there was a, uh, a restriction on that in certain certain parts of the country not nationally. Uh, so anyway, this is better in that way. However, it was not used again by the New Dealers or, or by Hoover uh, or the Fed, frankly, uh, once they started becoming involved. And so there, there were actually three bank, what were called holidays, uh, that occurred within uh, three years um, when people could not, get their, could not convert their deposits into currency. Uh, so again, a lot of important things did happen. So the Fed, now that the war was over, has his shot, has its shot at it. And this is again central planning, socialism, whatever you want to call it, uh, doing doing what the frankly the private bankers had done in the past. Uh, the Aldrich Vreeland Act, of course, was an act of Congress, but it worked great, an act of the Treasury. You didn't have to make this whole separate bureau, which has done a lot of harm. Uh, so it, the 1920s in the United States were a template for excellence disregarded thereafter. I mean, immediately by the – and Hoover, Hoover and his, uh, his uh, contemporaries uh, were the first to – I mean, we get blood on Hoover's hands. If you've read my first book, uh, Correcting Our Financial Miseducation, Raising the Bar for the Average, you know this. If you would like a copy, uh, of course, you can buy one. But if you'd like one for free, just email me at my website, pauldayton.us. There's a little button you can push. Uh, talk to Paul, email Paul. And uh, just send me a mailing address and let me know you'd like a copy of the book, and I will happy to send you one for free. Uh, so, yeah, Hoover and those people get, get, get uh, blood on their hands because they start to veer from the proven course of success, right? 
the, the loose hand. I always talk about the, the tightening of the grip around the windpipe of, of the nation and the populace or the loosening of that hand around the windpipe of, of the populace and the nation. So the, the loose hand had always uh, prevailed, had always been predominant, often, not always, often been predominant. Uh, for the country for so long in such great prosperity, lifting people, the poor, uh, not only the name, the, you know, I was, I was at the analogy of the, uh, of like a, a wedding reception. So there's different tables, right? And the name play, the name cards at the tables change, right? So, you know, Sally Jones started off in the poor table and then was, went, you know, to middle class or went to like super rich and even went back down. Uh, there's trans, it's a transient membership in, in the economic classes, the financial classes, uh, which is great. But even the condition of what was called poor was elevated greatly, uh, incredibly well, by, by such methods in this very country. And then they started going the other way. The politicians, once the New Dealers got in there, I mean, it was clear and obvious. Their strategy was to uh, hold the people hostage with their own money. And that is a, and that is a tactic that has, um, once it was injected in that way into American politics, and again, remember, taxation, total taxation as a proportion of GDP, as a proportion of the national income, had always been like 10, around 10% in the United States uh, coming up to the New Deal period. During that time, the income, the proportion of, of, of the nation's income taken by government swelled uh, swelled to 20%. That is, it doubled, right? So the shackles on the citizenry was, was doubled uh, during that time. And of course, we get to the great failure of socialism part two, uh, which is the, the New Deal legislation metastasized into the great society and the uh, ever-growing welfare state war on poverty, where another 50% so went from 20 to 30% up to now a, thir a third of the nation's income. And again, by the, uh, by the 90s, by the turn of the century, um, and even afterwards, I mean, we'd make it up. We're generally trending between like 40 and 45 percent state, federal, and uh, local taxation total consumes 40 to 45 percent, almost half of the nation's income. So it's important to briefly outline the decade immediately prior to the decade-long economic depression of the 1930s, as it illustrates well an almost perfect contrast of both approaches and of results. The 1920s were a decade marked by relatively low income tax rates, an absence of heavy-handed regulation, comparatively low labor unionization and union power, an absence of federal programs dispensing handouts for the healthy, the so-called safety net. There was no federal minimum wage. Uh, there was great industrial progress. There was an increase in real income for all income classes, an improvement in material quality of life for all, but particularly for those in the lowest income classes. By contrast, the 1930s, that is the New Deal decade, were marked by the opposite approach and the opposite results. Post-war inflation was handled poorly by the newly formed Federal Reserve Board, and the board made a drastic and sudden alteration in rates, as opposed to a slow and gradual alteration. And this drastic shift resulted in a very difficult transition year during 1921. This government-induced recession occurred during the Harding administration, uh, led to one in 10 workers losing their jobs. Now, I'm going to pause there. So government creates a problem, right? They poorly handle the post-war inflation. 
They make this drastic cut in rates instead of doing it gradually over a period of time, which causes a drastic shock. Right? They use the word, you find the word shock if you do any reading on this often. Uh, so you call, use what's termed a co cause, what's termed a shock to the system, uh, which caused one in 10, that's 10%, right? One in 10 to lose their jobs. What was done? So now we're going to ask the question, what was the approach and what were the results? Answer, in absence of heavy-handed government wage controls or handout programs, firms adjusted by reducing wages and recovery was swift. By 1923, employment was restored. So that is, during 21, the government creates this problem. By 1923, it was fixed by the government just staying out of the way and doing nothing. Contrast that with the New Deal period, in which it goes on for a decade and never gets better. Uh, right, so that's that. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, one of many measures of the American economy, although not the only measure, Look at the level of 88 to 89 during the week in which President Coolidge took over for the deceased President Harding in August of 1923. The Dow would nearly double by, to 168 by July of 1927, and that level would itself double to 343 by October of 1929 as Coolidge turned over the party's candidacy for election to Herbert Hoover, the eventual winner of that race. Treasury Secretary Mellon low rates helped to provide steady growth of the decade, along with the low jobless rate for the workers, as unemployment was a little over 3% in July of 1927 and just under 5% in October of 1929. On the topic of taxes, July 1921, so, the, so first of all, before I go on to the topic of taxes, the Dow has this explosive growth. People were, we were talking about the housing market a few episodes ago with Samantha Knight Hansen. Uh, on the show, and again, you can check out that episode if you're interested. Uh, we spent some time talking about the housing market and interest rates and what we think is going to happen. I, I predict interest rates, in today's interest rates, <clears throat> will look very attractive in three years, five years, ten years. People will be wishing they, they gobbled up loans at 8% and 10%. Uh, seems likely. Or at least they won't regret it. Uh, seems likely. But uh, that's just a prediction. But anyhow, so we're talking about that, but people say because the prices had swollen so heavily, and again, I pointed out with the shutdowns, the, 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 um, uh, yeah, the shutdowns of 2020 in the name of COVID, but it was just to create a crisis, a perpetual crisis. Again, which the New Dealers did. They just had a perpetual emergency, which they kept making worse, like an animal eating its own tail, just feeding into itself over and over again, making it worse and worse. Uh, the same is true of the uh, of the COVID, uh, was called COVID. Shutdowns in 2020, they forbid production, they skyrocketed the money supply. So everybody could see, particularly people who have like some significant money, like much, much beyond me, it's clear and obvious that cash is bad, get into stuff like real estate and gold. Uh, not a surprising outcome. So for a rush into real estate to cause an increase in the price uh, is not a surprising outcome. Plus, we have prices continuing to stay high because of the, the artificially created inflation, which is occurring, which will, which will continue to occur, because they're not retiring the money they create. They're not. They're just not, uh, unfortunately. I was calling all through 2020, banging the drum, just take the money back. Just take it back out of circulation. It'll all be fine. Don't worry about it. And, of course, that was not what anybody did. But people saw, so from in 19... Um, 23, the Dow Jones was at 90, right? It was 90, uh, 
which when you hear like the present, the present, uh, well, the last few years have been like, you know, 18,000, 20,000, so forth. So nope, just 90, less than 100. Uh, and then, so that's in 23. By 27, it was 170. By 1929, by October of 29, it was 350. So it's enormous. So people were sort of expecting, um, when there was not massive inflation at all, were expecting that to come down. Uh, most people were. Uh, so when it did fall uh, on the, the famous day, uh, which was really two bad days, uh, the reaction of government was the problem, which began with the Hoover administration and was exacerbated by the Roosevelt administration. It was not the couple of bad days that caused the decades of suffering. It was the government's reaction to it, just like the COVID monster inflation. It was not, you know, that one-tenth of one percent of Americans were killed by the COVID monster in 2020, according to the CDC. That's how much or how little 360,000 is out of 330 million people, one-tenth of one percent. Uh, it's not because of that. It's because the government's response, because they shut down, they, they forbid, forbade production, paid people to fail to produce, and skyrocketed the money supply. They did it on purpose. So anyway, we call, go back to the 20s and the right thing. This is what we want people to do. The reason we tell people about this is I, I wish that people, that it would become politically profitable for somebody to run on such a platform. And this is what we asked Ms. Sarah last week. I asked her, the New Deal was such a disaster, and I told her some facts, 15 to 20% unemployment, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the failure for the war effort. I mean, she mentioned the war, World Second World War. In 1936, the Spanish Civil War breaks out. In 1938, Hitler... Uh, and the National Socialists uh, of Germany, uh, I guess we'll use today's term, they immigrate into Poland, uh, and so on. I mean, war keeps going on, war keeps breaking out. The New Deal Congress spend, 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 tax, 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 tax. The shifting of the burden of taxation from the high earners and the corporations to the average person, uh, which I do illustrate uh, in the first book, with a very good chart. Um, that all occurred. And then, so this all goes on. They're taxing and taxing, spending and spending the New Dealers, but they don't have a standing army. War in Europe is for five years at least. It's going up, going on, going on. New Dealers do nothing. New Dealers do nothing. New Dealers do nothing. No standing army. And then on December 7th, 1941, bombs fall on U.S. soil out in Hawaii. Again, they're caught with their pants down without a standing army. It takes over a year over a year to get an army together. And then they finally send them over to sort of mop things up in Europe in the, in the European war is more or less what happened. I mean, for this, they get an A plus. What's it take to get a bad grade, I wonder, from such an evaluator? So let's look at their superiors, the people of the 1920s. On the topic of taxes, July of 1921 saw the corporate tax rate increase from 10% to 12.5%. In 1922, President Harding, uh, dropped the top income tax mildly, was 73%, unfortunately. And he dropped that down to 58, which is still too much, down to 50% by 1933, which is, by 1923, excuse me, which is still far too much. But nonetheless, the top rate was then cut in half, down to 25% uh, by 1925. And this is really the key. By 1925, the top income tax rate was 25%, with the lowest bracket being taxed at 1.5%. Can you imagine out there? Imagine that out there. 1.5% income tax rate for the lowest earners. 
could you, I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like a dream. 25% for the highest earners. I mean, shoot, most people pay an effective tax. Well, most people. I mean, I know I have historically uh, paid a, a, an effective tax rate of around 25 to 30% myself overall. So, I mean, back then, of course, you see the superiority of what they were doing. The years 1925 to 28, uh, those were the rates. And then in 1929, the top rate dropped down to 24%, which is more or less the same. It is worth noting that the amount of dollars paid by the highest bracket rose from $300 million to $700 million, rising in terms of total tax revenue collected by the Treasury from roughly one-third of total taxes paid during the early portion of the decade with the high rates to nearly two-thirds of total taxes collected by the later years of the 1920s. That is, you lower the rate, you stop disincentivizing production, productivity, you stop stealing from people who are doing the right thing, treating them like criminals, right? When you have just government, the actual number of dollars taken in skyrocketed skyrocketed. Now, two-thirds of the total tax dollars were paid by the high earners and that when the bracket was only 25 or 24 percent, as opposed to merely being one-third of total tax dollars. So you think you're taxing the rich, but in fact you're taxing so the poor can pay more taxes uh, when you raise high taxes uh, on the high, uh, the high earners that way. And of course, the poor, the less money, also pay uh, in other ways, can pay in other ways. That is, there are fewer jobs to go around. Why would I have a business? Why would I expand my business? Why would I want to make more money when the government's just going to steal it from me? I'm not going to create any jobs. I'm just going to sit where I am. I'll sit tight, right? Uh, so the material quality of life for the masses improved mightily during the 1920s. Indoor plumbing was installed at the homes of the rank and file members of the American populace during the 20s. Indoor plumbing. I mean, imagine, imagine how much better you out there listening to Imagine a life without indoor plumbing, right? It was now no longer a luxury of the, quote, rich. It was for everybody. I mean, and by the way, in China, by, by the 1980s, the masses did not have indoor plumbing. I know that. Uh, for, it may have still taken longer. Uh, with all their central planning, confiscatory practices, and punishing people for being successful, putting people into positions that didn't belong just because they were good fighters. You know, it's like what Diane there was on last week. If she wants to have socialized, you know, she wants to force people to have monopolized medicine, monopolized health care, which instead of having people in, in place who are competent in health care, instead you have people in place who are competent at uh, government, basically fetching for votes and sleezing around back rooms and, and you know, that, that kind of a thing. So that you have people in positions, uh, you're putting the, the people as, as a whole, the masses, at the mercy of people who are not in a job where they where they deserve to be. That is, you don't have medical people there, you have government people there, right? Same thing with agriculture, right? You don't have people competent in farming and, and food, uh, food storage and preservation and, and pesticides and all that kind of stuff. You don't have people competent in that. You have people who are competent in, in government, at jobs, at office seeking. Right, and now they're there, and they have no idea what to do other than make unsubstantiated claims. And guess what happens? Productivity goes way down. The masses suffer. So anyhow, going back to the 20s in the United States, with indoor plumbing coming to the homes of the rank and file, I'm going to say it again because it's so wonderful. Radio was the new technology of the day. 
a luxury item only for the, again, the quote, rich, uh, which found its way into more and more homes as the decade progressed. In 1925, about one in five U.S. households had a radio. But by 1929, the portion of households with a radio had swelled to 35 to 40 percent. 35 to 40 percent. Uh, wonderful. As sales of radios in America rose from $60 million worth in 22 to $846 million worth in 29. Beginning in the 1910s, the dynamic growth of the new automobile industry, absent of rampant overbearing union monopolies, as well as absent of heavy-handed government regulation, brought a trend of steadily decreasing costs for new Model T cars which accompanied an ever-increasing income for the American workers overall. The number of cars on the road in the United States ballooned from 6.7 million in 1919 to 23 million by 1929. It's incredible. The average earnings uh, in 1912 were uh, $600. The price of a Model T was $600. By 1914, the average earnings of the U.S. worker uh, was $630 a year, where the price of a Model T was four ninety. 1916, the average earnings, $700 a year, price of a Model T, $360. By 1924, the average earnings of an American worker, $1,300 a year. Price of a Model T in the same year's dollars, $290. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to replace that with the word, uh, I don't know, government program, right? We're going to have a program for, for, for automobiles. We're going to have a program for jobs. Has a government program ever yielded anywhere near such spectacular results? You out there in the world, if you can name one, if you can even name one, it'll be, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens against one. But please, please tell the world about it. I read these books, Schumpeter, and I read Karl, I mean, Karl Marx. Uh, you read these people. I always ask the question, where's the beef, right? They, talk, they make all these unsubstantiated claims. They have all these, you know, predictions that never come true. Uh, they say that things will, will, will be better for the masses when, in fact, they make it worse for the masses. They say things will harm the masses when, in fact, the masses benefit. Look at this, unregulated auto industry, relatively un unregulated uh, labor market. What do they get? Ever-increasing wages with ever-decreasing car prices all by themselves. The problem for sleazebag politician class is none of them can take any credit for it. They can't say, ah, I got you this program. Ah, I got you this job. Ah, I got you this. Ah, I did that. Instead, no, that, that's, the, that's the only class for whom this is not beneficial. Uh, another noteworthy worthy occurrence in the 1920s, as is contrasted with the forthcoming decade and its cancerous economic legacy, which still ails the country to this day, was the triumphant moment in which the Supreme Court rejected a minimum wage law. In 1923, in the case Adkins v. Children's Hospital, a localized Washington, D.C. measure was struck down by the court on the grounds that such a law infringed upon the individual civil liberty to contract with one's employer and vice versa. I'm going to say that again because that's the correct answer. So this was, this was not a federal minimum wage. It was just a Washington, D.C., you know, local minimum, regional minimum wage that had been in, uh, was, that they were struck down by the Supreme Court. Because, and this is 100% correct, such a law infringes upon the individual civil liberty to contract with one's employer and for an employer to contract with those who they would seek to hire or who have hired. Uh, now, I want to point something out. The people who are harmed uh, most, most, uh, 
most by a minimum wage are the least skilled and the least experienced. The abolition of minimum wage laws, the least preferred applicants, whether that lack of preferability is, is derived from a lack of experience, lack of skill, negative racial, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, negative racial, ethnic, religious, or gender prejudices held by a prospective employer or any other reason put themselves on sale in order to enter the job market of a particular field in the first place so that they may prove themselves just the same way that a new business or a new product is placed on sale in an attempt to induce the customer to give that business a chance. A rise in price can come later after preferability among the customer improves, but at the outset, plain fact remains that 100% of nothing is nothing, and minimum price laws limit the least preferred to an earned income of nothing. And we talk about the you know, gender and, and, and racial prejudices. I mean, take the example of South Africa. In South Africa, during the 20th century, many cases during what they call apartheid, which was racial, uh, racially based laws. The laws there were against uh, blacks in particular. And what happened was there was a minimum wage for whites. And so what people started doing was hiring blacks. Even though maybe they don't like blacks, maybe they don't talk to blacks, maybe they would never let a black, you know, be a customer at their business, or what, no matter how much they don't like the person, right, just because of their, their skin color and for no other reason, they still chose to pay that person money, to hire that person. Why? Because the customer thought it was in their best interest to do so. I get the best price, the best performance for my dollar, I'm hiring them. Minimum wage law, so a, a minimum wage law would prevent such a person, the least preferred candidate from getting a job. The same is true. People say, Paul, minimum wage benefited you, to which I reply, of course it did. When I got out of high school, I was literate. I was healthy. I was six feet tall. Like I was, I was not going to be the least preferred candidate in the unskilled worker market, right? It's the person who is, you know, whatever, not, not as healthy looking, not, not as tall. The person who's not going to get picked first for kickball, right? That's the person who's harmed. I benefited, sure, because it made the other person less desirable. When I was working for, I'll just pick a number, $10 an hour, uh, somebody else wanted to done the job for eight bucks to start. The employer had to pay more money. The other person who was not hired got, got uh, restricted to a maximum wage of zero, and they weren't able to enter the, the workforce in that case uh, to try to, you know, learn skills like how to be someplace when you're supposed to be there, for example, how to follow simple instructions, and how to handle money, how, to, how you first get your, 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 your uh, experience with, with managing an income all very, very important uh, skills for anybody to, uh, to go, through the, uh, go through life and go through the job market. So we've reached the bottom of the hour here. It's 8.30 Eastern, where I sit here in West Virginia. You're listening to D&P, delivering the truth and exposing the lies. Diana is not with us here this week, but she will be next week. We do miss her on the show, but she's always busy out there fighting and working on all of her committees and everything else. Uh, so uh, her, our thoughts are with her. Uh, Come back, everybody. We have another half hour to go, and uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes here on DNP, delivering the truth, exposing the lies on Freedomizer Radio. And what do you think of the draft? I think America wants new leadership. New leadership. What kind of leadership do you suggest? I suggest a wizard. A what? A wizard, like Merlin, who could kill his enemies by wishing them dead. That's the way we'd like to beat communism now, by wishing it dead. 
The manufacturer wants more war orders and lower taxes. Labor wants more consumer products in a 30-hour week. The college boy wants a stronger army and a deferment for himself. The businessman wants a bigger Air Force and a new Cadillac. The housewife wants security and an electric dishwasher. Everybody wants a strong America, and we all want the same man to pay for it. George. Let George do it. Ah, I disagree with you. I don't want to let George do it. <laughs> you must be the exception. No, I'm George. Well, that's a hot Everyone wants George to do it. Except George. No, everything's gotten so expensive. I'm going to starve. Official sources say inflation is only up 7% from last year. Uh, but the official index doesn't even count food or gas. Transitory inflation is good and healthy for the economy. How is it good to not be able to afford food? Eating fewer meals per day is better for your health. How are you going to sit here and tell me not being able to eat food is good for me? You're, you're out of touch, man. You can't ignore this problem. Inflation is real, and someone needs to take responsibility. <sighs> you're right, man. It's his fault. <laughs> You're under arrest for shoplifting. But we're in California. <laughs> How is inflation affecting you? Leave your comment below. Please like, share, and subscribe. And if you want to help us make more, donate at patreon.com slash freedom tunes. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you're tuning in from, my fellow Liberty lovers. This is Amber S. from Living with Freedom Ministries, reminding you to tune in on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific time, for the Living with Freedom show, where we'll embrace what living with freedom can look like physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and in everyday life. That's 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, here on Freedomizer Radio. Looking for something different? Looking for something fun? Join Dan every Monday on the Freedomizer Network, 9 to 10.30 Pacific, noon to 1.30 Eastern, for Common Sense with the educated redneck, Dan Ellison. The show about everything and nothing at all. Welcome back to the show. This is Paul Dayton here on DNP, delivering the truth and exposing the lies. Uh, Dave Franklin and Diana, my, my co-host, will be on next week. If you're tuning in for Dave, uh, tune in next week. He uh, had to reschedule. And Diana, unfortunately, did not make it. To, was unable to make it tonight. But again, she's so busy with everything she has to do. Uh, she's on all these committees and with all these causes. It's amazing she finds uh, enough hours in the day. But uh, unfortunately, she couldn't make it tonight, and we do look forward to having her with us next week. Uh, so we are thinking of you out there, Diana. Uh, so, yeah, on with the show here. We've got uh, the final segment here, and I'm going to spend a little time changing the subject 
to uh, to another matter, which is going to be socialized medicine or monopolized medicine, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're just going to talk about socialized medicine a little bit uh, all around the world. Uh, so when you talk about people, the shysters out there, their unsubstantiated claims, they'll often, you know, talk about phantoms, things that don't exist, and say, well, you know, these, these variables like natural resources, like the population, like the topography of the area and so forth, um, which, I mean, those are important factors, and it's not that they aren't worth uh, taking a look at, but what we notice when we start doing that, we take in the whole of the evidence, is that, you know, for thousands of years in countries of varying sizes and natural resources during varying time periods and in different parts of the world, the one constant is that the more socialized the country's medical health and health and excuse me, medical and healthcare industries become, the more quality suffers and scarcity increases. And I want to point out this is not unique to the medical industry. This is the same with every industry. It's the same phenomena over and over again, whether it's steel production, whether it's automobile production, whether it's agricultural production, uh, whether it's medicine or anything you like, right? It's always, always, always worse for everybody. Uh, many seem to regard a low nominal cost in acquisition as the sole objective, not realizing that the total cost to the citizens consists of tax transfers from the treasury to the medical providers in addition to the cost of acquisition as well as the cost of paying the bureaucrats to do the regulating, while also forgetting that costs may be higher in competitive cases because what they receive, what the person is receiving, the customer is receiving, is of higher quality or increased convenience. Filet mignon costs more than ground beef for no other reason than because it is better. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Let's pause there. Imagine if there was a government you know, program, the name of Helping the Masses, that made a, a, a uniform price for beef. And the uniform price for beef was low because the politicians don't suffer anything for that in the immediate term. They think they're going to play Santa Claus and, uh, and appease some of the masses, ingratiate themselves with some, some of the masses, whether they're running for election or not. Uh, and so what will happen is if you set it, they say the price of ground beef is the maximum price for any beef, well, what do you suppose is going to happen to better quality and better cuts? They're going to start disappearing, right? They're going to, I mean, it's the, it's the answer. Or they're going to be in such incredibly, incredibly small portions. Frankly, what will probably happen is the, the producers will keep it for themselves and the public won't be able to have it at all. Or it'll be uh, commandeered by the bureaucrats and the government for themselves, and the masses won't be able to have it at all. You know, you won't be able to have high-quality stuff because the high prices make it worthwhile to produce high-quality stuff, to keep it nice, to get it someplace on time, to, keep, you know, to give it as much shelf life as possible, and so forth. So this is, uh, again, it's the same old phenomenon. Some people know these things, but some people don't because the appalling popularity of uh, nationalized or socialized monopolized uh, medicine uh, pervades. So in the United States, I mean, the U.S. has been make, moving slower, uh, further and further into the direction of both increased regulation and socialization of healthcare and medicine. Uh, healthcare and medicine are different, of course. Healthcare is uh, meaning access to physicians, surgeons, and, and, and equipment. Well, medicine refers to like medications and drugs, treatments. Uh, the Obamacare legislation, known commonly as the Unaffordable Care Act, uh, was already touched upon uh, in other areas on different shows. 
but it frankly has just a direct effect of merely transferring money from the treasury into the accounts of the healthcare companies as opposed to reducing total costs. Milton Friedman, the great Milton Friedman, a 20th century American economist, pointed out in a 2001 study that from 1946 to 1996, so over a 40-year period, beds per thousand in the United States decreased by 60%, while hospital personnel per bed occupied multiplied ninefold. So that is, for every hundred, or excuse me, for every thousand beds that existed in the country, hospital beds, for treatment for people who saw treatment in 1946 there remained only 400 in 1996 during that span however the employees hospital personnel per bed occupied multiplied ninefold cost per patient day increased 40 fold over that time span adjusting for inflation in 1962, so during the middle of that period, the United States passed legislation introducing new regulations on the production of new drugs in the name of increased consumer safety. Now, consumer safety, consumer protection was sort of a buzzword, a buzz phrase that was popular for a few decades, politically profitable, sort of like the Ralph Nader uh, phrase and that sort of crowd. Uh, from 1962 to 1980, so from the time the law was passed, for almost 20 years, new drugs manufactured fell by 50% compared to the pre-1962 levels. Fell by half. So we have we have taken the number of new drugs manufactured and dwarfed it by half. The other half are just eliminated from the market. By 1978, the cost of developing a new drug and getting it out for sale in the marketplace as measured in inflation-adjusted dollars had increased from a million dollars and 25 months in 1950, which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at, to $54 million and eight years by 1988. Eight years by 1908. All of the drugs and medicines kept out of the hands of consumers during these lengthy waiting periods certainly did not improve their safety. And in that way, the legislation certainly failed to live up to its promise of consumer safety. Increasing the cost of developing a legal drug for sale makes it, in effect, illegal, illegal to treat afflictions which are less common or rare. That is, the government makes it so you, they, they, they discourage you from doing it. You must really, it must be an act of private charity, right, on the part of the producer. So in other words, if you, make, if you have $54 million in 1980 and eight years tied up in bringing something new to the market, you have to, you have to feel like you're going to be able to sell it to enough people to not only get that that money and time back to you know to 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 recoup your investment, but also to make enough more that it was worth it to do so. Because remember, you know, every single one of them is just like making a movie or something. Like they're not all going to be hit. Like they're not all going to have uh, you know a big audience in the same way. So so what you're doing is people who have like ma rare maladies and rare afflictions. What happens to them? What happens to the little guy? Right, the big, the big, the big crowd has the big uh, problems, the big afflictions, and so treatments for that will be produced and available. Whereas somebody, if the disease only affects you know a small minority of people, uh, then it will not be legitimately produced, you know, by 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 a, by a medical company, by a drug manufacturer or a pharmaceutical company, because they're guaranteed to lose money. Government made it so that 
treating such people, the little guy in this case, the, the, le the least popular uh, maladies, uh, doesn't happen. And that's, uh, again, not really uh, helping uh, anything at all. Certainly not helping the patients as a class, not helping the country as a class either. Uh, if anybody wants to call in, by the way, to uh, the last few minutes of the show, 319-527-6208 here on Freedomizer Radio. Now, Canada is a country with a famously horrific health care woes right at the border to the north of the United States. Canada began their self-inflicted health care woes with their entry into monopolized medicine during the middle of the 20th century. The Commonwealth Fund conducted a study in 2007 to 2009 showing that 57% of Canadian adults waited longer than four weeks to see a specialist, while only 23% of Americans did during the same time. So again, we have that tight grip, loose grip on the windpipe analogy. The Americans have tightened the, the grip on the windpipe of the people, the populace, the country, uh, in medicine. But Canada just tightened it with squeezing much harder, much harder on that windpipe. Uh, so, so what's happening is, yes, it's worse in America than it should be, but look how much worse it is in Canada. The same study reported that the case of citizens seeking a physician for emergency, 30% of Americans were able to see a physician the same day compared to only 23% of Canadians, and that 36% of Canadians had to wait six days for an emergency physician compared with only 23% in the U.S. When it came to elective non-emergency, so again, this is freedom to choose, liberty, not being told what you may or may not have, right, by central planners and, and things being rationed out, doled out. Now, this is a funny, there's an interesting uh, phrase, Peter Bauer uses it, and I'm probably going to use the quote in my next book, forthcoming books, there's socialism, the gift that keeps on taking. But, you know, he, he mentions that, that children handle an allowance while adults manage income. Socialism makes children, central planning makes children of the populace by force. In the same way, you know, with this monopolized medicine and the rationing and the doling out of things, it makes, makes beggars, makes beggars of the populace. If you are, if you are into freedom, or what's it called, my body, my choice, choice in medicine, so that's the T-shirt slogan, my body, my choice, is popular with a lot of people. Expecting choice when you have a monopoly in, in effect is an exercise in idiocy. Beggars, by definition, cannot be choosers, right? They make beggars of the people. It's, it's fascinating. The same class of people will often shout the T-shirt slogan, you know, my body, my choice, and then also have the T-shirt slogan of, you know, monopoly, health care for all, universal health care for all. Well, those are irreconcilable, of course. The person is showing nothing but a tremendous wealth of ignorance uh, with such conflicting and contradictory expectations. Uh, moving along here, waiting was the number one complaint amongst all respondents regarding the state of health care in Canada for 27% uh, up to the north, while only 3% of Americans had a similar complaint, uh, according to factcheck.org. The Canadian federal government taxes its citizens at a rate equal to 33% of their GDP. Now, these are income taxes alone, isolated. It's not total taxation income taxes at a rate equal to 33% of their GDP as opposed to 24% in the United States, which is a differential of 36%. That is, if you started out with $24 and you ended up for, for of every share of stock you bought and you ended up with, you sold it for $33 for a share of stock, you made 36% of your money. So that's a difference of 36%. I often see people, they run into trouble with that. because They'll do 20, you know, 33 minus 24, that's not 36. So 
I always expl explain that to people. Uh, 36% differential, 36% uh, more of their GDP is taken. The incredibly expensive health care has other effects on the economy. The public old age pension fund called Social Security in Canada has been raided to aid in covering, quote, the government's share of the cost. Of course, governments don't have money. Citizens have money. Money taxed from the citizens for their old age because the citizens were deemed by politicians to be too irresponsible to save it themselves is irresponsibly spent by those same politicians who have bungled the healthcare system by being foolish enough to buck the evidence of both history and of current events by supposing that public monopolization would perform in a superior fashion to the free enterprise system. Canadians pay a social security tax that is 2% higher, nominally 2% higher, 17%, as opposed to 15% uh, in the United States. But Canadians receive a smaller check. It's only two-thirds the size. Canadians, $984, $1470 for the United States. These are average checks. All of this taxation still leaves Canadians paying an average of $690 per year out of pocket for medical costs, just $400 less than their neighbors to the south. But what about the other common cost of, of public monopolization called scarcity? Paying in terms of scarcity, shortages, ration, whatever you want to call it, is paying in terms of time, which is a type of money after all. We've already seen several examples of waiting times while resulting from the inevitable rationing of whatever the government attempts to, uh, to uh, control in lieu of the private enterprise. We're going to go to other parts of the world here. Uh, Record of socialized medicine is not restricted to North America. Tom Sowell, in his book, Applied Economics, brought forth several examples of the consequences. And by the way, I recommend that book, Thomas Sowell, Applied Economics, Thinking Beyond Stage One. It's an excellent book out there if you're looking for something to read. Uh, several examples of the consequences of government control over the health industry in other parts of the world. In the Soviet Union, toward the later stages of its existence, before its house of communism collapsed upon itself, 80%, 80%. That's four-fifths, four, that's four, four out of five people, of all patients were seen at neighborhood clinics in which physicians were to see eight patients per hour. Eight patients per hour. Each patient was rationed their visit in seven point five, seven and a half minute bursts. Five of the seven and a half minutes were spent on the paperwork demanded by the bureaucracy. Paperwork, which was often in short supply, by the way. So they're scrambling for this form that the person needs to waste their visit filling out, leaving two and a half minutes for actual, like, dealing with the doctor. Uh, brilliant plan. One doctor complained that, quote, our heads spin from rushing it, quote, and pointed out that, quote, we send, we wind up seeing the same patients several times over when one thorough examination could have solved the problem if we had time, end quote. In 1987, his office, the man speaking, had still had a 1950s-style fluoroscope. This account of badly outdated equipment is reminiscent of 1950s automobiles in Eastern Europe and Cuba in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. Equality generally means equality of poverty. It's so true. So we're going to get off the subject of socialized medicine for a minute here, and we're going to talk about briefly the transcontinental railroads in the United States. Uh, Diane Sarah brought it up last week, and again, I thought we showed excellent uh, restraint in not uh, not really rubbing her nose and everything uh, that she did that was false or even insulting. So she mentioned uh, 
the building of the Transcontinental Railroad in the United States as though it was a, a victory of central planning, a wonderful, uh, I don't know, a gold star on their report card. When in fact, uh, it's one of the great failures of socialism. I mean, it, what you have is government comes in and they have politicians colluding. So they, they, they make it such that they make it such that there was a restriction, an artificial restriction on who could and could not be the ones to uh, build the roads. And they also put um, attached strings to the money in such a way that people were not incentivized for doing a good job. They were just incentivized for taking the money. Um, so in, 19, in 1862, during the midst of the American Civil War, the Union Congress passed the Pacific Railroad Act. This act would grant politicians the ability to plan and build railroads with taxpayer money and also for faux entrepreneurs to pose as businessmen. And in fact, they were nothing more than welfare queens. So what's called like the robber barons were really just welfare queens, right, during the 19th century. Uh, you have, so again, this is government tightening its grip creating, fostering, and, and perpetuating monopolies, creating these welfare queens. And yes, these people robbed people blind, which we're about to hear about. Uh, there were still grown men with real careers who, uh, during that time, who served the public, like John Rockefeller and like uh, James Hill, who we're going to learn about with the railroads here, and many others uh, who did much better. I mean, the amount of, of the, the tons of people went to jail, as we're about to learn, during the, the building of the American Transcontinental Railroads, and they built roads that were really not, not suitable for use. It took, uh, well, well let's, let's find out more here. Uh, so what you have here is the, U, the UP, the Union Pacific, and the Central Pacific was the other sort of line uh, authorized by this congressional body. The UP was to begin in Omaha, Nebraska, and head west, while the CP... Uh, the Central Pacific was to begin in Sacramento, California, and work eastward. The federal government was to pay each rail line 20 alternate sections of land for each mile of track completed, as well as to make cash loans per mile completed. The cash loans were to vary and to be determined upon the type of terrain the track was laid upon. The 16,000, these are the 1860s, folks. I just told you in the earliest 20th century, uh, the average American uh, worker earned like $500 to $1,000 a year. So this is uh, uh, three quarters of a century later, the value of the dollar was such that people would earn $500 to $1,000 a year, like the average regular worker. $16,000 per mile in, in the 1860s was paid for, mile, for flat track, $32,000 per mile for hilly terrain, and forty-eight thousand dollars for each mile of track laid in mountainous territory so they're handing out land as well as cash and it's just it's just per track per mile of track laid the fact that the railroads were to be paid per mile irrespective of the quality of the tracks or the practicality of the route laid created an incentive to prioritize speed above all other considerations the up and the cp were to meet in the middle but no predetermined point was set at the outset so that the race was on to build as many miles of track as possible, as quickly as possible, in order to cash in on that government payola. So you just have pigs feeding at the trough in the name of helping the masses. 
The UP line was built with chintzy materials and sometimes unnecessary miles of track were laid and built to add unnecessary curves to the route merely to rack up miles of track built since they were paid per mile. In 1869, the UP and the CP lines entered Utah running parallel to each other and were paid by the government to do so. The workers of the rival lines engaged in violence towards one another, destroying track and even causing casualties. On May 10, 1869, completion was declared. However, the hastily built Chintzy lines had to be rebuilt and rerouted in many areas. Another five years would pass before the actual completion of the joint transcontinental line. Nonetheless, 44 million acres of land were paid out to the railroads and their boards of directors, along with $61 million in cash loans which was an astronomical amount of money in the 1870s. And yet, even with all of the treasure gotten by the heads of the rail line, the roads were nearly bankrupt upon completion. The reason for this can be very easily found in the fact that all of the individuals acted in their own self-interest and for their own gain, which is perfectly natural. But the problem was that nobody's money was involved in the financing of the railroad. One recurring lesson about central planning is that when the money is, quote, everybody's, it's also, quote, nobody's. And so the profitability, that is, nobody's watching the till like it's their money because it's not really their money. And so the profitability of the railroad company, which was formed by capital investment of absolutely nobody involved, was of utterly no priority whatever. One such example of the types of behavior involved was the bilking each line by the bureaucrats running them for money by selling the rails low-quality building materials owned by their own private businesses at inflated prices. So that is, they didn't think about anything beyond stage one, like how is this railroad going to run once we're done building it? Uh, is it going to be efficient with uh, with the use of fuel and things? You know, can we charge rates? Is this going to go through cities that are going to have uh, traffic and give us business afterwards. Nobody thought like a grown man with a real career. They were just children thinking about, I get paid for my laying a mile of track, and I'm just going to take as much of that money as I possibly can. Greedy little pig. Uh, it's pathetic. And so the people, of course, suffered. I mean, this is all at the public's expense uh, in the name of, of, of their own benefit. Uh, so that, yeah, let's see here. In 1874, the UP got a new man in charge who paid the steamship company to, oh, and by the way, so I'll just say that again. What these people were doing, the welfare queens, so the rails need need uh, materials, right, metal and you know, railroad ties and tracks and things. So what they would do is they would sell them, so they're, they had a private businesses that manufactured, that, that produced these products. So they jacked up the prices, gave them the worst stuff they had in their stock at inflated prices and built the railroad with those, all in the taxpayer dime. Uh, eventually, what happens is uh, the ICC is formed, which, uh, which uh, codifies monopoly and rate fixing into law, making, making a monopoly legal, an actual monopoly legal. A bunch of people go to jail. There is another guy called James J. Hill who built a private railroad, the Great Northern, uh, which, in which other welfare queens had failed trying to build it. He bought it over five uh, non-consecutive miles of track laid between St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, the West Coast, I think Seattle, Washington offhand. And um, it was the best railroad of all. I mean, he was built with his own, with private money. The bosses were actually involved. They thought beyond step one, it was the only rail of its kind, transcontinental at the time, to not go bankrupt. It was profitable. It actually created a, um, a second steamship trade with, with, uh, with Japan. 
which was very, very lucrative until the government went in and, uh, and stifled that. We are running out of show. I can't give you any more details on that right now. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in to DMP, delivering the truth and exposing the lies on Freedomizer Radio or on iHeart or however you're listening to this. You can go to pauldayton.us to uh, catch every episode of the show, plus articles, and hear me on other shows. Uh, you can check out Diana. Uh, her uh, health stuff is right there on the DNP episode archive page at pauldayton.us. You can check out the show on Facebook. That's sort of Diana's baby. Um, and she does she does a good job keeping it uh, with a lot of content. Um, and, again, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. We miss Diana. Uh, we look forward to having her next week. We know she's very busy. She's involved with so many causes and committees. Uh, next week, we're to have Dave Franklin, candidate for town council, District 6 in New York State. That should be a fun show. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm so glad that you all shared this time with me, however much of it you did. Please tune in next time, and uh, if you're bored, go to uh, pauldayton.us and check out an article or listen to another episode of the show. Uh, God bless you all. Stay free, and have a great night. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.